0: We come now to chapter 15 in the Gospel of Luke, and as far as I'm concerned, this is the culmination of everything Luke has been telling us about the life of Jesus. It is the denouement of Luke's whole Gospel, summed up in the three parables that we find here. They come after Jesus hears that the righteous religious leaders are grumbling that he eats with sinners and tax collectors. And by the way, a tax collector was the scum of society. People were taxed for everything. You think we're taxed. In those days, Rome taxed every possible conceivable thing to get money to maintain its strong militant power. And to do so, Rome would name a large landowner and his geography, and that landowner would be in charge of all the people in it. And the landowner would hire tax collectors to go out and tax the people. And whatever the tax collector could earn that was more than what Rome demanded, that would be the tax collector's payment. You can see it was a system built on bribery and extortion and fear. They were the mob muscle of the day. And he eats with them, they said. Jesus, never missing a teaching moment, and this was one, decided to teach us and them through parable, which is normally the way Jesus taught. And so he lifts up the three parables in this morning's text because they all share a similar DNA, They have been called the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son, or the lost son. But I think they should be more aptly named the parable of the found sheep, the found corn, and the uh, coin, and the found son. For they are about what was once lost being found. And as a result, it was party time in the kingdom of God. In every case, all three parables end with a banquet that comes because of the joy of finding what was lost. Hear now the word. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. So he told them this parable, Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness. Actually, not one of them would. It is a completely irresponsible and impractical thing to do, which is why this parable is so radical. But move on. Which one of you would not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who at least think they are, who need no repentance. My paraphrase. Or, what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, Jesus said, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And we all know the third one. It's the story of a man who had two sons, and the younger son came to him and asked for his inheritance, which is just as good as saying, I wish you were dead and takes that inheritance and leaves his father's house and his village. He's ostracized completely and heads out into Gentile territory where he wastes it on wine, women, and song. And when he is completely impoverished, he gets a job slopping pigs, which for a Jew was the worst of all labor. He has to resort in his poverty to eating carobs from the trees. When he finally comes to the fact that he is bottomed out, he works up a Really interesting plan. He wants to go back to his father and confess that he did wrong, but to make a deal with him that he would become like a hired slave. It's a deal. So he heads back home, and as he's coming up the drive, his father, who had always been on the lookout for him, sees him, runs off the porch, which, for an Oriental father, is an act of great humbling. It it is humilify it. It's in humbling, no one in that position ever runs anywhere. Yet he runs to his son, embraces him. His son cannot get the deal out at all. His father says to his servants, give him my best robe, give him my signet ring, kill the fatted calf, let us have a party. Everybody's invited. At that moment, the son is restored, not only into the family, but into the village. And it's party time. They kill the fatted calf, which means in order to eat it, everybody has to be there. The elder son, working in the field, hears the party going on, and as he's making his way in, he he calls his servant and says, what's that about? And the servant says, well, you know your brother. He came back, and your father's throwing him a party. The elder son at that point, completely enraged, Goes down to the party, does not enter, sends his servant in to get the father out of the party, another act of humiliation, and the father does go. And there the son chastises him, whining that you have not given me a party ever since I have served you to, down to my nub of my fingers. And the father says, Everything that is mine is yours, but my son was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. Come to the party. And the parable ends with the elder son refusing to enter. Since two months ago, we were gifted with another rescue cat we named Traveler, mainly because his legs are black and his body is gray and his tail is black and he resembles Robert E. Lee's horse, Traveler but also because he never stops running from this where and that in a sort of frantic search for food. Since we got him, he's not yet figured out that he will get plenty to eat in our house, that there will be a feast every morning and every evening. Yet he is so conditioned by his past scarcity that around feeding time, he goes into what we describe as a frantic feline feeding frenzy. He starts meowing at us incessantly an hour before its time. And every time one of us gets up to do something, he tries to corral us and herd us down to the kitchen so that we'll feed him, caterwailing the whole way. When we finally approach the food, the two other cats are sitting there waiting calmly while Traveler is running around looking into everybody's station, their bowl to make sure there's not any food in it yet which means, of course, that we have to feed him first. Otherwise, if we feed another cat, he'll just barge head first in and try to steal it. When we do feed him, he gulps it down as fast as anything you've ever seen. He is so fast that he can't help but choke, but he doesn't. He sucks it down, hoping to finish so that no other cat can come over and eat his food, but really the ulterior motive is if he finishes first, then that lifts him free to go eat their food. It's a rule that whoever feeds the cats in our house has to stay on watch until all the food is eaten by all the appropriate players, which sometimes takes a while since G.W., who's also named George Washington, likes to take his time. He's not the least bit anxious about it. He'll eat four or five bites and walk away, four or five bites and walk away, which drives Traveler absolutely more frantic because he wants to get to his food. You can tell an animal's or human's background, I think, by how they they deal with food, I've discovered. For Traveler, it's clear that wherever he grew up, there was not enough of it, that he had to fight and stealth his way in in order to get enough to eat, probably in some pack of feral cats out in the woods somewhere. When he was found on the side of the road, he had apparently gotten lost even from them. Now that he's been found, it will take most of his life, I suspect, to understand that he no longer has to live this way, live the way that he used to, desperately, frantically searching, Always anxious that he does not have enough, even when he has more than plenty. And in a way, of course, we're just like him. Conditioned by life that we are lost in an unfriendly universe, we've learned to fight and stealth our way to get enough of what we are starving for, food being the lowest level on Maslow's needs hierarchy, but love and self-actualization being the highest. For most of us, it's almost impossible to believe that we have been found and that we now live in the midst of abundant grace, that God in Jesus Christ has provided for us a spiritual and emotional feast which is always ours to enjoy if we will let ourselves sit down and receive it. Most of the time we just go around thirsty in the middle of a monsoon. Friends, this is the primary word Luke is trying to tell us throughout this gospel, that God wants only for us to sit down and feast upon his love and grace. That nothing makes God more joyful than when we sit down and savor his presence and love for us. And that this feast, you see, is for everyone. Not just the good people, the rich people, the righteous people, the religious people, but the lost people, the last and the least. This is why in in Luke's gospel, breaking bread and table fellowship serves as the primary symbol for what all this means about God and us. And why Jesus seems always to be doing it. As I said last week, there are 12 different events in Luke where Jesus is at table fellowship and a whole lot more that he's talking about. His critics accused him of being way too social while they accused John the Baptist of being too austere and not eating with anyone. They accused him of eating with tax collectors and sinners, especially, and so much, apparently, that they said he was a glutton and a wine-bibber, which is another word for drunkard. But really, it was because they condemned Jesus' radical changing of eating and food laws that they based their whole sense of identity on. It was hard for us to get a sense of this. He eats with anyone who is willing to sit down with him. Pharisees and Republicans, and excuse me, Republicans, Democrats and Republicans. That comes next. Harlots and heroes. Male and female. He picked grain on the Sabbath if necessary. He turned the table on much of what the religious cult held dear about who they were. If any one thing got Jesus killed, it was how we changed the precious rules around table fellowship. Now this emphasis on eating may sound strange to us as I said, but it is only because we do not understand how those cultural rules were so real and important in the society and how those regulations kept everything ordered and in place. For the Jew table fellowship and Sabbath observance identified them in a world where they were sieged, under siege by the Roman militant party. It was how they stood apart in the midst of occupation. What one ate, how one ate it, and especially who one ate with were the critical questions that determined who you were. The book of Acts, for instance, after the church has been formed and sent out, Peter, Jesus' closest right-hand disciple, many say, goes out to proclaim the word to the Gentiles, and when he gets back to Jerusalem, this is Luke's story, by the way, when he gets back to Jerusalem, he's called on the carpet by all the other leaders in the church because what? He preached to Gentiles. No, because he ate with those who had been uncircumcised. You may remember the wonderful movie Driving Miss Daisy, which is all about table fellowship, by the way. In the beginning, her chauffeur, uh, chauffeur Hoke, and her maid, Adela, uh, prepared all the food, and they had to eat in the kitchen as Miss Daisy alone would eat in the living room. Those were the rules. But over time, those rules changed. When Adela died, no longer able to fix the food, Miss Daisy and Hope would fix it. They planted a garden that they grew together, and they came back, and then they began to eat together. And in the end, in the great divine kingdom of God twist, when Miss Daisy is put into a nursing home, Hope would go and see her and sit down beside her at table and feed her. It seems that breaking bread together at table still carries some symbolic weight after all in our world. What do you do when someone dies? You bring food. What do you do when someone gets married? You have a wedding banquet. People from the same family who have not spoken in years are forced to put on a smile and sit down beside someone they hope they'd never see again and look like they were having fun doing it. It's the kingdom of God. This is so important, you see, according to Jesus, that these parables uh, are about what it means not to stay lost forever. When the shepherd lost the one sheep, he irresponsibly left the 99 to fend for themselves in order to find the one. He did not stop until he found him. Same with the woman with the coin. Same with the father who refused to quit watching every single moment for his son to come home. And he did, of course, not because he repented, but because he had a deal and he was hungry. There is no self-congratulation in any case. The coin did nothing to be found. The sheep did nothing to be found. The son did nothing to be found. They were found. In all three parables, they were found found. And when they were found there was a feast of joy and thanksgiving where everyone was invited because you see, in the kingdom of God, if any one person is lost, it affects all of us. The last parable gives us more detail. they kill the fatted calf, everybody comes, he receives him back. he's restored back into the town and into the family and it's a guarantee that Even if you choose not to come, you still get an invitation. And all did, apparently, except the elder brother, the first son, who was too righteous or too jealous or too hungry for his own father's love and affection to let himself feast on a meal not given in his own honor. I will not sit down with that bum brother of mine if it was the last meal on earth. I'll starve first. How many times have we heard that? All of this said, it is, of course, Bread of Christ Sunday, which kicks off today, as you know, and it is simply about our sharing this unbelievable, unmerited grace of God with each other. The presence of God, with sitting down with each other, just simply sitting with each other, nothing on the agenda other than just to be present with each other, that bread, that symbol of the presence of Christ, just as Jesus is present with us. It's all about grace, and it's a party, about gathering together because we are all lost in our own human and particular ways, just as we are also all found as we sit down together for a moment or two to share our joy or our grief or our grace, to share these parables that promise us that no one is ever lost forever. He descended into hell, our confession says, which is to say that even in hell we are not so far lost that Christ cannot find us. Some of you will say this is no big deal, getting together for a cup of coffee or a Coca-Cola, but some may say that this is really something huge after all. Who knows what might come of it? I was having a meal just like this the other day with a friend of mine who recently told me his whole story. He was a successful physician about 10 years ago until he lost both his brother and his son in about six weeks' time. They were meaningless accidents. It sent him to quit his job and to sign up to go to Columbia Seminary looking for meaning in the midst of this grief and meaninglessness. I knew he'd gone to seminary, uh, and so I asked him, what was it you were actually looking for when you went? He said, Well, I I I personally was looking for an answer to the why. And I discovered in seminary that there is none. That that's what the whole book of Job is about. There is no answer to the why question. What I didn't know at the time was that I went there looking for God. What he discovered is that he did not find God so much as God found him. When he arrived, he began to see that a banquet table had been set already and his name was on it, waiting for him to sit down and eat. And the menu, of course, was simply grace. He shared that when he got there in one particular class, it was the Job class, the teacher asked everyone to add, to tell why they were there, and he didn't really want to tell that story, but he did, and it came through great tear and suffering as he told it. And as he told it, he said, I found this incredible grace of God through all of those members in the class who cared for me during my hardship. Now, as he told me all that at lunch, I get this email the next day. He said, I've been thinking about this all night, and your question, what was I looking for when I went? And this is what he wrote, I suppose I found myself there, stripped of pretense and standing naked before God in the most profound agony of soul and struggling with the monstrous deformity in my heart from the compound losses of my son and my brother. I think I found over those two and a half years at Columbia a grace-filled world that exulted in my woundedness and replaced it with that unfathomable gift of grace. I suppose that is why I could no longer even say the word let alone contemplate the gift of grace without being overcome with emotion. It matters not if the word comes from you in the pulpit or in the privacy of my study. The effect is the same, and the tears are ingratitude that one so undeserving as I could be so blessed. That's about the best I can do. And he signs it, grace Friends, the table is set. It is prepared. The feast is before us and we are all invited. All invited, no matter what we are or who we are or what we've done or what we will do. We are all invited to sit down and sup at the marriage uh, feast of our God, Jesus Christ, blessing to us at this table. And since... This is what we are all most hungry for. Why resist? Let us now come bringing with us the gifts of our lives and our labors.